I promise you, if I had uh, proposed to my wife, Abby, like that, 100% chance I missed that mat. 100%. <laughs> Both legs broken. They're like wheeling me down the aisle. Like, I mean, I think we're all kind of familiar with the concept, right? You know, success or, or failure, epic failure, you know, whether the, a sound effect happens when it, when it happens in our life or not. I mean, here's an example of uh, nailed it or failed it in my life. One time in college, I received a term paperback. It only had four words on it. It said, see me after class. I get, I get cold sweats thinking about it now. My goodness gracious, there were no marks on the paper. There was no grade on the paper, just those four words. So my mind starts racing. I'm like, what did I do wrong? Like, does she think I plagiarize on the paper? Like, what's going on? And this class was a history and philosophy class, and I was supposed to write a paper on a pop culture example of ancient Greek history. I know, sounds riveting, right? So I went and I, I found a movie that I didn't think would be that difficult to write about, and I went from there, and it wasn't my best work, it wasn't my worst work, but I turned in the paper on time, and I, you know, I finished it up, and I had no idea, actually, why I was called into the professor's office. So I knock on the door, you know, I open the door, I sit down, and she asked me to come in and take a seat, and I'm terrified, and she asked me, she pulls like the parent move, she goes, why do you think that you're in my office? Okay, so I have like two options, right? It's like the best paper she's ever read in her life, and she wants to like frame it. No, that's not what happened. You're right. Or something bad. So I was sitting there, and I just blurted out the words. I just said, I didn't plagiarize, which like come to think of it, maybe you don't like yell those words. Even if you didn't do the thing, like the first words in the meeting shouldn't be, I didn't do the thing. You know, like if you, you get you know, arrested for murder and you go into the cop and then you're like, I didn't murder the guy. And they're like, okay, now you did. Like we're a hundred percent sure you just did, but I really didn't. And so she goes, Hey, Adam, no, I, I don't think you plagiarized this paper. Uh-oh. Wasn't even good enough for you to think I plagiarized. <laughs> you're here because you failed the paper. And my heart sank. I was like, I've done okay. I put in a little bit of effort at least. And she explained, she said, Adam, you were supposed to write about Greek history in pop culture. You wrote about Roman history in pop culture, which isn't the assignment at all. And so uh, I'm going to give you a zero on the paper because it wasn't the right assignment. And you need to be more careful when you complete assignments. And if there was a sound effect following me around, it'd be like, wah, 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 right? Like that type, of, that type of moment. It was an epic fail. And we all kind of know that feeling. Whether it's epic or not, we know what it's like to fail. I mean, maybe it is a school story for you. You know, you prayed for God to provide the answers to the calculus test. And instead, God's answer to you was you should have prepared for the calculus test, you know? Or maybe it's something in real life right now. Maybe you've experienced a job fail. You know, you've got fired or you did something dumb, or you just didn't fit in or whatever, or maybe you've had a parenting fail. I've had my share of those. You know, you didn't pick up the kid and the kid's like sitting there or, you know, or like in my life, the, your child parrots back to you the exact words that you say and you're like, oh no, that's not good. Or maybe you have a failed relationship. Maybe you've had a failed marriage. Maybe you failed financially in, in some way. Or maybe you feel like a failure. You failed as a son or a daughter. You feel like you can't live up to these expectations. See, I think we're all familiar with failure in one way or another. 
And at the end of every failure, I kind of think that we all would appreciate a second chance, right? I actually got a second chance from that professor on the term paper. So she, she said, okay, since it was so bad, I'm going to give you another shot. And if you do it correctly, I'll, I'll give you up to a C. And I left at that chance because C is better than zero. Now we're starting a, a series about the book of Judges. And that's in the first half of the Bible. That's the Old Testament. And we're calling it not-so-superheroes. And it's all about these leaders of the people of Israel or, or the people of God. And it's talking about how this, they just really mess stuff up. And the book of Judges is really about two things. It's about these not-so-superheroes, and it's about epic fails and second chances. So here's the setup. Here's the context. Here's what you need to know about the, the book of Judges. So this book happens right after a guy named Joshua led the people from the promised land. So Joshua is the same Joshua that fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and all that. Same Joshua. And Joshua was leading the people of God, leading Israel. And he was leading them into what they called the promised land. This place that God had promised them. And Joshua, at the end of his life, he gets everybody together. And he says, okay, look, I'm reminding you to obey God and do everything God asks you to do. And the book of Judges begins right there at the death of Joshua. And it describes how Israel doesn't do anything that Joshua asked them to do. And it's a total epic failure to follow God. And it's about this spiral that happens. Like it gets really, really bad in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is named after these main characters, these not so superheroes that they call judges. Like here comes a judge, here comes a judge. But it's not like Judge Judy type of judge. Anybody get that reference? Anybody know where that's from? Two people? Awesome. It's from Laughing. In case you're wondering, you can Google it. It's a thing. Or it was a thing. So the judges weren't like judges in robes, you know, like sitting on a throne or anything like that. They're more like tribal leaders or military leaders or chieftains. You know, that's that's really what these judges were. And the book of Judges is about these people. And the book of Judges is incredibly violent, like epically violent. There's a lot of examples of terrible leadership. The good guys who are supposed to be good do really stupid and bad things. And over and over and over again, it just points out how the people of God are failing to do what God asked them to do. So what is it that God asked them to do? Like, what are they just being so stupid about? Well, check this out. This is the epic fail. This is what it was. Israel didn't drive out the Canaanites from the promised land. So Israel came into this land and God had given it to them, but people already lived there. They're called the Canaanites, a bunch of different kind of people or a bunch of different ethnicities and, and people groups. And Israel was instructed, okay, if you come into the promised land, you have to drive out every single person that lives there. And that seems like overkill to me. Like it's hard to do one thing or two things, like a whole people group. Why would they do that? Well, here's the point. The whole point of driving out the Canaanites was God was saying, you need to avoid their moral corruption. You need to avoid worshiping the gods that they worship. They did things. They worshiped lower case gods that did all sorts of terrible things like child sacrifice. 
That was kind of the, the worship culture at the time. And God said, you need to avoid that. Get out of there. Don't marry them. Don't talk to them. Get them out of there. And Israel didn't do that at all. So this is from the first chapter of Judges. Check this out. So the Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. So they're in the promised land. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. And this story kind of happens over and over and over again in, in the first chapter. Check this out. The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people. The tribe of Ephraim tried and failed. The tribe of Zebulun failed. The tribe of Asher failed. Likewise, the tribe of Naphtali failed. Just epic fail, epic fail, failure, failure, failure. That is what is happening in the first chapter of Judges. And these tribes, Judah, Naphtali, Asher, all those are the tribes of of Israel that make up the people of God. And they just didn't do what they're being asked to do. And sometimes they had good reasons, like their iron chariots, which means that they were fortified, they were strong. Sometimes they had really bad reasons. Sometimes they just didn't have reasons other than laziness. And it kind of brings up this tension. They're not following God's command. And at the beginning of chapter 2, all of this failure happens. And then this is the first verse of chapter 2. So the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said to the Israelites, so this is God talking, his messenger. I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you are not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you are to destroy their altar. See, so this is, this is just a reminder of what they're asked to do. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So this is a reminder. God is saying, okay, I promised you but you promised God. And God hasn't broken his promise, but the people have broken their promise. And they made covenants with all these people. And they made treaties and alliances. And they married them. And they didn't destroy their altars. And they started worshiping their gods. And they disobeyed. So verse 3, check this out. So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. God's saying, I'm out. There will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a constant temptation to you. And that's what happened. Over and over and over again in the book of Judges, it tells the same story, just with different characters. And it kind of goes like this. Something I call the sin spiral. This is what it is. So here's the sin spiral. It's a little uh, Dr. Susie. Yeah, check this out. This is what happens. So the people of God... Just don't follow God. Whatever that means. They didn't drive out the Canaanites. So that is sin. So that's how it starts. Like, pow, sin. And then God allows Israel to get into some bad situations. There are consequences to the sin, maybe called oppression. So these people that they're supposed to drive out start to rule over Israel. And Israel starts to get frustrated. Israel starts to cry out to God. And they say, God, show up. And they cry out in repentance. And they say, we're going to turn away from our evil ways. We're going to stop doing the stupid stuff. We're going to follow you again, God. And so God hears their cry. And he says, okay, I'm going to send a judge who is going to bring deliverance, who's going to help the people of Israel out. And that happens over and over and over again. And so the judge comes, conquers the people who are oppressing Israel, and then there is a time of peace. Usually that time of peace is the lifetime of the judge. Until 
the people of God forget again and they start following the Canaanite ways again and they forget what God has done and then it starts over and it gets worse and worse and worse. Do you ever feel like you're in a sin spiral? Have you ever been in kind of a situation like that? And it might not be exactly the same, but I think we can learn something from this kind of spiral right here. See, we sin, we make mistakes, we fall short of God's standard, what he's asking us to do, and then negative things happen. Oppression happens, consequences to our sin happens. And then we struggle, and we feel that negative stuff, and sometimes we cry out to God, and we say, God, where did you go? Help me out. And we say, I'm uh, like, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to live like this. I'm going to turn away from it. And we do repentance. And then all of a sudden, we see how God is loving and caring. And he delivers us from that sin. He gives us a way out. And then we feel this peace in us until we fall back into our way of thinking and we spiral down. This is real life. We might not see it that way. We might not always like approach it this way. But this is real life. So I was thinking about an example that maybe we can all wrap our mind around, whether we've experienced it or not. And I was kind of thinking that, you know, a really good example of a sin spiral is addiction. So I'm just going to kind of bake it out for you. If you're addicted to something and it's sin, it's maybe not God's standard. And then there are consequences to that in your life. And we kind of, we see that maybe it's, it's relationship consequences, maybe it's you know, financial consequences, maybe it's physical consequences, you know, legal consequences, whatever. And then you go, I don't want to live this way anymore. An addicted person cries out for help in repentance. And then things are okay for a little bit because they're delivered. Maybe somebody comes alongside them, maybe they go to rehab, maybe they get the help, they go to a recovery group and that's all good. But a lot of time, I think we all know, statistically, there's something called relapse. And so you go and you receive kind of help and you're living okay for a little while, but then you start down that same path and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. That is an example of a sin spiral. Now, before you all get all judgy and you're like, well, I've never been addicted to anything in my life. Here's the truth. We're all addicted to sin in one way or another. Every single one of us. The Israelites were. I am. You are. And maybe it's not that your sin is, you know, you uh, worship a false god like Baal or Asherah or you do child sacrifice or anything like that. If that's the case, we need to talk right now. But maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the anger in your life. Or maybe it's gossip or maybe it's lust, or maybe it's pride, or maybe it's something that you put above your relationship with God, like security or safety or comfort. See, any of those things can be a part of a sin spiral. And really the the book of Judges reminds us, look, if we aren't obeying God, it's a big deal. And God takes sin very seriously. And the sin spiral is really the literary structure for the entire book of Judges. 
So check this out. I'm going to prove it to you. Here's the first judge that's in the book of Judges. His name is Othniel. So we're going to see if we can apply kind of that sin spiral to these areas. Check this out. This is verse 7 in, in chapter 3 of Judges. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of Baal and Asherah poles. So here it is right here. In one sentence, step one, sin. Okay, let's keep going. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel and he turned them over. Okay, so I'm just going to pause right here. If you ever have to get on a stage and read from the Old Testament, here's a piece of advice for you. You say it fast, you say it confidently, and you move on. Okay? All right, here we go. So he turned to them over to King Kushan Rishthayim of Aram Naharayim, and the Israelites served Kushan Rishthayim for eight years. Okay, so this is the oppression part of things and some really gnarly names. Okay, verse 9, what else? But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, that's the repentance part of things. What happened after that? Well, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. That's the deliverance part of things. Well, what did he do? Well, he went to war against King Kushan Rishthayim of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Okay, full disclosure, I've practiced that name like a thousand times this week. But you see, this is the peace part of things. So there's the progression, all in just like 15 verses or so. Sin, oppression, Repentance, deliverance, peace, rinse, repeat. What do you think happens next? So there's peace for 40 years. What do you think happens next? Sin. Yeah, it wasn't a trick question. It would have been really weird if it was something else. See, the entire book of Judges is kind of like this. We're actually reading through the book of Judges in the Ridge Reading Challenge. And if you're not familiar with what that is, the Ridge Reading Challenge is challenging people who call the Ridge their church home to be in the Bible regularly. So we have kind of a plan to read through the Bible Monday through Friday, some verses or a chapter a day. And we're going through the book of Judges while we're teaching on the book of Judges on Sunday morning. So tomorrow is like Judges 1, and you'll read about all this failure that we were just talking about. And as you read through the book of Judges, it's this sin cycle over and over and over again. And it actually gets worse as the book progresses. And there's this sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and peace. It's in every single judge's story. Now we saw it for Othniel. What about the next judge? He has an awesome name. His name is Ehud. Anybody name their kid Ehud? I'd want to meet you if you did. Okay, check this out. This is Judges 3, starting at verse 12. Sin spiral. See if you can identify it. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. A lot of times, the sin and oppression are even in like the first verse or two of a judge's story. They're both right here. Sin and oppression. All right, what happens next? But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, that's repentance, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. So that's the, the repentance and deliverance part of things. And does it matter that he's left-handed? Yeah, it sure does. But I'm not going to tell you why it's such an important thing. That's a teaser for you to read the Ridge Reading Challenge. It does matter. There's a reason that it was in there. I mean, it's not just like left-handed weird. Like there's a reason that it's in there. So 
What happens? Well, the rest of the story of Ehud is about how the people of God were delivered. Over and over again, that's kind of how the the stories are set up. Each judge is like, okay, sin and oppression and repentance. And then it's the story of God delivering those people. The spiral in judges is in every story. And in this one in particular, it's like verses 16 through 30 in chapter 3. And Ehud's story is epic. It's awesome. And it talks about weird things. It talks about a king that's so fat that when Ehud stabbed the king, the handle of the knife disappears in the king's fat. That is in the Bible, y'all. That's a real thing that's in the Bible. It's awesome. See, see, the Judges is a really entertaining read. It's like Game of Thrones on steroids. Like, it's a really awesome thing. But check this out. Fast forward to the end of Ehud's judgment. Spoiler alert, I know. But check this out. We already talked about what happens. It's peace. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day. And here's the peace. And there was peace in the land for 80 years. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Over and over and over again. And in the series, we're going to talk about some of these judges and see what we can learn. See what we can apply to our lives about about this. But if we stop right here and be like, this is kind of depressing. Like everything gets worse. And again, spoiler, but the end of judges does not end well. It keeps getting worse. Every single judge keeps doing worse things. And there are terrible examples and awful things that happen to people. So what in the world can we take away from this book? Even in the first three chapters of Judges, what can can we learn? What can we take away? Well, here's the first thing, I think. Following God is always the right way to go. Have you ever been in like a moment of clarity? And you go, if I hadn't done this over here, then this over here would never have happened. You know, if I had slowed down long enough to actually read the assignment, I probably wouldn't have written about the wrong culture. Like, have you ever watched a movie and something really chaotic and bad is happening? You know, like the main character's running away and then it freeze frames? And it's like, I bet you wonder why I got into this situation today. That's what we're talking about. Because there are reasons we get into the situations that we do. Things like, man, if I hadn't hung out with the wrong crowd, I probably would have never been there when that happened in the first place. Hey, if I hadn't clicked on that thing the first time, maybe I wouldn't be addicted to it over here. Hey, if I had asked for help way over here, I would never have maybe stepped out on my wife over here. See, we often like focus on this part of the story, like the, oh, I made a big bad decision part of the story. But it's not one decision, is it? It's a course of bad decisions that lead us to these things in our life. And oftentimes, if we're following God, it is the right way to go, period, end of discussion. And for Israel, if they had followed God, if they had broken the cycle, things would have changed. Let me prove it to you. This is Judges 1.19. I'm just going to show you this. The Lord was with the people of Judah. That's how the book of Judges starts. God is with them. He's winning. He's helping them take over the promised land. They took possession of the hill country. This is exactly what needed to happen. And there's a big old butt right here. And they failed to drive out the people living in the plains. They failed to do what God had asked them to do. They failed. They stopped because they were scared. 
So they stopped. This is the same God who's already done all of this stuff. And they stopped. Doing what God asks us to do is always the way to go. God was with the people. And even if it didn't make sense to them, he was providing for the people. But they failed. And it didn't end up well. So that's that first takeaway. Following God and what he wants us to do is always the way to go. Here's the second takeaway. Don't forget God's provision. See, the story of Israel, which is really what the Old Testament is about. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. So that's the the part of the Old Testament that has happened before this book. Over and over and over again, it's about how God shows up. How God provides. How God loves. How God wants his people to do what what is good for them. So these are the same people that God has helped out of slavery in Egypt. These are the same people that he he provided what to eat and what to drink in the wilderness. Miraculously, by the way. These are the same people that he gave leaders. These are the same people that he gave direction. And he brought them into what they called the promised land. He was fulfilling his promise And still, the people forgot. Judges 2.10. So they said, after that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. See, we can be guilty of this too. It It takes no time at all. It happens in a snap. God shows up in so many ways. Has he shown up in your life before? Has he shown up in the life of somebody you know? Has he shown up in the life of this church? I know he's shown up in my life. Think of a huge way or a small way or a real way that God has shown up in your life. See, we forget and we get into this moment and we're like, where is God? What is God? How is God? What do we do? And we forget the mighty things that he has done throughout history. That's why the Bible is so valuable and so important throughout our lives, even in the life of the ridge. We're celebrating one of those moments today, 5,000 hours that none of us could have done on our own. That's God. Following God's way is the right thing to do. Don't forget God's provision. And here's the third one. This is one of the most important themes, if not the most important theme in Judges. Even in our failures, there is hope. When I read the book of Judges, I get easily distracted. I get distracted by the details of how things happen, and I'm like, oh man, a guy was so fat, they lost the knife in the dude. And like, that's that's cool, and that's awesome. But here's the point of this book. Over and over and over again, God is willing to rescue us. That's what this book is about. Even when we mess it up over and over and over again, he is willing to rescue us. And it helps us understand everything that happens afterward. So I'm not sure what your failures are. Do you have one? Are you living in one today? I'm sure that you have them. I mean, I have them. 
And many of our failures are serious. Many of them are public. Some of them are not. Some of them are just in our head and heart, but they have serious consequences. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt our relationship with God and we hurt others and we have broken relationships and we have broken homes. And we have broken expectations. We have addictions. We have depression. We have anger. We have pain. We have lust. We have sin. And we are desperately in need of a second chance. And the amazing thing about the Christian faith is even in our failures, there is hope. And as we read the book of Judges, we see how Israel doesn't need a judge. He doesn't need a king. They need the king of kings. They need a savior. Israel fails and God shows up. And do you see how much hope there is in that? That decade and generation after generation, God cares and there is hope for us because of Jesus. See, we have hope because Jesus stepped in and is the Savior and made right our failures. We have hope because no matter the worst failure, epic fail you can think of in your life, Jesus provides grace that is beyond what we deserve and what we can do on our own. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, taking on the judgment we deserve for our failures, our sin, our epic, terrible terrible decisions, we have hope, not because of what we do, because even in our failures, there is hope because of Jesus. And even though Jesus' name isn't listed in the book of Judges, the hope of a Savior is all over the place. So as we do our best to follow God, And as we do our best to remember how God has provided for us over and over and over and over again, we rest in the hope that even as we spiral in our sin, Jesus can do what we cannot. Somebody needs me to say that again. Jesus can do what we cannot. He provides a second chance that is beyond our wildest imagination and even in our failures. There's hope. Do you feel hopeless today? There's hope. Feel failure today? There's hope. You don't know what to do or where to turn, friends? There's hope. I'd like to pray for us. Thank you, God, for hope that we don't deserve. In this moment right now, I'm just, I'm, I'm personally overwhelmed with that. Hope that I don't even fully understand. Hope that I can't do enough to get into the right part of the relationship. You know that. You know that when we're left to our own devices, it's just this epic, sin, failure, spiral. Thank you so much for hope. Thank you that we don't have to do it on our own. Thank you that in the midst of our hurt or in the midst of our pain or in the midst of our depression or in the midst of our wondering or in the midst of our confusion or even if things are going really well, we still just feel maybe some emptiness because you're not, you know, first. I don't know what it is, but I'm just so grateful that in our epic failures where we fail and fail and fall short again, that you 
love us so fully, so perfectly that you send Jesus to die on the cross, not as judge, not as jury, but to conquer the executioner. That you provide this hope that is full of life and joy and love and peace that surpasses our understanding. You even say that if we trust you, that you will overflow us with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just so grateful for your love. And today, as we enter into this week, help us live and remember what you've done and do our best to follow you and do what you're asking us to do. And I'm so grateful that even in my failure today, that there's hope from you. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.